0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 4th of November, 2019, and this is episode 135. On this week's podcast, Dr Michael Reeve, academic skills tutor and history lecturer at Leeds Beckett University, talks about his doctoral research into coastal communities in the northeast of England during the Great War. I spoke to Michael... Michael, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War?
1: Uh, Hi, yes, thanks for having me, Tom. Um, So, I um, recently completed my PhD at the University of Hull Um, and now I work at Leeds Beckett as an academic skills tutor and a history lecturer. Uh, So for quite a few years I've been um, doing research on the First World War, started with my undergraduate degree, carried it on with my master's degree and then um, it's culminated recently in me completing that doctoral thesis and I would say that I got interested in in it kind of by accident I suppose. Um, I just happened to be designing my kind of uh, BA dissertation project around the time when the Great War was very much in the media. It was everywhere because of the kind of um, centenary approaching. Um, And I already already saw myself as a, a social historian and a cultural historian and interested in things like consumption and identity, uh, so gender and class identities and things like that. First forays into into real research were, at BA level, were kind of combining that interest in consumption practices and identity with a First World War historical setting. So that's why that dissertation focused on um, smoking among servicemen in the British services during the Great War. The, the functions it had for them, In the trenches, its wider kind of cultural significance in popular culture at home and at the front. And so I just kind of kept pushing, pushing. Uh, the different areas that I could look into that I I felt hadn't really been covered and as I did my MA and into the PhD I got more and more interested in the home front in civilians and their experiences and their kind of overlooked experiences particularly with regards bombardment. because a lot of people tend to associate the bombardment of civilians kind of almost solely with the blitz of the second world war and so I felt there was more to be said about the experience of civilians in the great war and now I'm trying to you know, keep this going, generally see myself now as a historian of wartime resilience um, in 20th century conflict. And so this is the ball is rolling now with this kind of becoming my specialism.
0: Right, before we get into the detail, could you tell us about what the area of Britain you focused on and what these communities were like in 1914?
1: Well, uh, I now focus, well, in my most recent piece of research, which was the thesis and article that I published recently in in the Journal of Critical Military Studies. I've I've looked at the northeast coastal area of England and selected a few case studies within this that I felt lent themselves well to comparison. Um, So I looked at Hull. Um, which is my hometown, um, so i already had an interest there um, in in that particular place. And that's compared and contrasted with uh, Whitby, Scarborough, and what at the time, uh, in 1914 to 18, well, up to the 1960s, in fact, was two towns, Hartlepool and West Hartlepool. So I, I, I used this group of case studies um, to explore civilian experience during the war. And the reason they were chosen is because these were all places affected by bombardment. So Hull was bombarded uh, by zeppelin airships and the other towns were all hit in a naval bombardment in december 1914 all more or less at the same time with really just minutes in between Um, and so spent a lot of time looking at the, the different ways that people in those places responded to the threat and the experience of bombardment.
0: Before we get on to the the Great War, how did these communities regard the possibility of war and what it might mean before the outbreak of of
1: the First World War in August 1914? Like many places, there were rumblings of possibility of war before the outbreak. The sense that I got when I was doing my research was that places like Scarborough and Whitby, these kind of seaside places were generally, um, if you look at the press... Um, coverage from 1913 um, and the months immediately before the outbreak of the war you don't get a strong sense that people really believed that war was going to happen and it's kind of like the famous bank holiday before the outbreak occurred like people were really having a great bank holiday and carrying on as normal without really believing that anything was going to happen but saying that when you take into account the looming kind of narrative about germany as a threat and um, economically politically, militarily, from the turn of the century. When you look at civilian communities with regards to bombardment, um, you, there is a sense there that people felt that invasion was, was a possibility at some point, um, and this was couched in terms of Germany's growing naval threat. And I think the reason why I find coastal communities so interesting is because the, that sense of threat is stronger in those places because on the east coast they were eminently more exposed to the German threat. Because it's just a short hop across the North Sea, as kind of as, as it was put by some contemporaries.
0: So, what actually happened to these communities during the war? Can you give us a bit? I know you've touched on this already, but can you give us a bit more detail about the famous German bombardment and also the the Zeppelin raids that affected these these communities?
1: Yes, so there had been a raid on Lowestoft uh, on the um, southeast coast earlier in um, the war in 1914. But it hadn't; it didn't have a really uh, big effect on that place. Um, it, it wasn't as big a propaganda coup for for the British government as later raids would be. Um, so, um, December nineteen fourteen saw the first real kind of what you call a successful raid, I suppose, upon British soil. And it was when the first British serviceman um, fell in action on British soil in in the war as well. So. The 16th of December 1914 was when the Hartley Pools, which was Hartley which is kind of the headland area, um, if people are familiar with it now, um, and West Hartley Pool is the more inland kind of largely residential part. Of, what is now part of Hartley Pool one town, and up to the 1960s it was two towns. So the Hartley Pools, Whitby, and Scarborough were all affected by the same three battle cruisers uh, at that time happened about eight o'clock in the morning the the town was bombarded quite uh, something like 150 people were killed there were more injuries than that as well and it was although there was british intelligence on the possibility of this happening on the run-up to it and we and we know that now recent work by um, historians has revealed revealed some of that it was generally a surprise to people in those places and particularly because scarborough and whitby were not in any way kind of legitimate military targets in terms of the kind of law at that period, the laws of war. And this is why Scarborough became this real, it became a figure in in propaganda, there's the famous, remember Scarborough recruitment posters, where where the town is depicted, people running away from bombs, um, with Britannia, a depiction of Britannia at the head, so head of that crowd. And so you have Scarborough being co-opted into recruitment um, efforts because it was a kind of um, a revenge narrative, you know, how how could the enemy so flagrantly disregard international law by attacking a defenseless place similar ideas were present with whitby as well but whitby wasn't as badly affected the abbey was hit by a shell and the, the kind of ideas that flew around regarding whitby were to do with you know this is um, a great national treasure to kind of Part of the cultural and architectural stock of the nation. This was a kind of real attack on on Britain. So Whitby is kind of the the image of it is weaponised in a similar way, um, but it's not as widespread as Scarborough. And with Hartlepool, which was far and away the worst affected place on in that bombardment, they continue to this day to commemorate, and um, people in that in the town continue to commemorate the bombardment through a ceremony every 16th of December, at exactly the time that it happened. And during the war and after the war, there they were concerted. Um, commemoration and fundraising efforts through what they call bombardment thanks offering days um, and so arguably the memory of of the bombardment was kept you know was very strong in those places and remains so to, to this day moving on to hull hull had about um i think it was eight zeppelin raids between 1915 and 18 and didn't have as many deaths as in that na- that, that that naval raid but was one of the worst affected places prior to um, the 1917 Gotha aeroplane raids on London um, and this is why I thought it was important to look at the northeast because the, these places were the site of some of the worst um, kind of attacks on civilians in the whole war until um, the aeroplane loomed its um, kind of ugly head later in the war and in whole it could be classed under international law as a legitimate target because it had docks it had factories it was a, a quite a, um, at this time, a, a very, quite a prosperous port, uh, port city. And so that was supposedly the reason why it was attacked. Although some accounts suggest that it was kind of accident some of the payloads were dropped accidentally because the zeppelins being been so hard to control in british weather would just drifted further up the coast than they were supposed to be and just but they had to drop their payloads and then kind of killed civilians in their homes Uh, and there's some very striking images you can see on the national archives website and things of, of bombed streets that are very similar to pictures that we're familiar with from the Blitz of the Second World War. And it's the same with Pool as well. There was a lot of postcards produced of images of bombed churches and houses with people stood in the frame kind of posing, um, or families stood next to their bombed houses. There's a strong kind of victimisation narrative there as well. Um, so, yeah, essentially uh, th- these were places that were quite badly affected by, by bombardment.
0: Which brings me on to the, the next question. Is, how did the populaces of uh, Hull, Whitby, Scarborough and Hartlepool actually react to these obviously various bombardments at different times during the war?
1: Well, it's um, this is an interesting question because um, the reason why I wanted to do a comparative study is because I expected there to be both some kind of overlaps in terms of response and some differences and this was proven uh, by the research. So what was really interesting about Scarborough is that it being not, A kind of um, official target or legitimate target. It was very heavily militarized following that December 1914 bombardment. So the defensive trenches were, were dug into. Uh, gardens on the promenade um, area. Um, if people are familiar with, with the town, it's they were built not far from where the Futurist Theatre until recently stood, so that kind of area. So they built these trenches on the promenade, they built trenches um, into the beaches, and that happened in Hartlepool as well. There were rolls and rolls of barbed wire rolled out on the beach, roadblocks built into streets, so Eastborough, uh, which is near where an ice cream parlour stands today. Um, there were regular roadblocks going up these streets, because this street. Um, on the front with um, the seafront were seen as areas where an invading german landing party could easily gain access to the town so hence the the need to fortify the beaches and the streets um, because what happened was there was a prevalent belief that after that bombardment there was one the possibility that it could happen again and two that that another bombardment would be accompanied by um, an invading party and um, if you read some of the histories of um, you know bombardment fear and invasion fear and i I cover this partly in my work as well the the growing kind of stature international stature of germany kind of fed fears that German Germany could invade the country and places like Scarborough after this bombardment were seen as likely areas where that could happen. So that was the immediate response in Scarborough was this this building of fortifications um, that were not really present before Um, and the introduction of uh, a lot of troops into the town and there was a real show of uh, military strength uh, in the in the day following the bombardment of uh, the Leeds rifles um, actually were entrained so they went on train to the town and marched through the town and kind of showed this kind of military strength. Um, In Hull where they had they did have some defensive guns there was already some long-standing gun batteries um, and forts around the Humber. These were not really that effective against the against the airships, really. And um, but the other thing to bear in mind is that the Zeppelins also were not particularly effective at targeting things very accurately. It's just the nature of the technology that a big balloon would just drift away. And um, but there were calls made by local authorities to shore up what was already there. New guns were introduced. Mobile guns on the back of vehicles were introduced that could quickly respond to where Zeppelins had been spotted. Um, And the interesting thing, especially about Hull, is that about 3,000 special constables, um, so voluntary auxiliary police, were recruited during the war, and part of their role was to patrol areas um, where there were likely military targets and to um, enforce the blackout because the Defence of the Realm Act, which is emergency legislation introduced in August 1914, uh, decreed that their lights were not to be visible from the outside um, on an evening Um, and so people had to have shutters down and this again is something that people know very very well um, with, with regard to Second World War. But often are not aware that very similar rules were imposed in the First World War, and so what you really, what you really get in Hull is a kind of big wartime special police force that's there to c- try to contribute to public safety because of the threat of bombardment. Um, and in Hull, you even get extra kind of auxiliary forces in the form of civilians forming their own street patrols to um, look out for zeppelins and w- uh, you know wake their ne- neighbours up to make them aware that a a raid might be due to occur. And that was in kind of working-class areas where the coverage by the regular police and their specials um, was patchy and people felt they had to kind of do things themselves, particularly so close to the docks, which were... a, a, a very clear target for enemy forces in Whitby there wasn't as far as my research has gone I couldn't find a lot of evidence of increased military presence or the same level of fortification as in Scarborough and uh, the other places and um, this is this is, I, I kind of concluded, because it wasn't as badly affected as other places, um, there was a sh- increased recruitment to a, a, a similar auxiliary police force in Whitby, um, and that's about as far as I could see it going. Um, and in Hartlepool, very similar to Scarborough, the, in beaches, um, they built defensive trenches and kind of had an increased uh, police presence, you would say, like in the other places. So, yeah, so there's varying responses and really the strongest responses in Scarborough, precisely because it wasn't a legitimate target, it was seen to really need those defensive efforts. And when the, the, the threat of a second bombardment started to wane in early 1915, in February, March time, they then started to roll back the defences and that was also in response to local businesses feeling that the, the 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 next summer season was going to be really badly affected by this fear that something could something bad could happen again so there was a lot of kind of political wrangling uh, locally in scarborough as well
0: how did the local civilian populations react to these uh, events was it for instance attempts to build bunkers or was there attempts to to evacuate children or did they actually just sort of get on with it
1: and um, as as the Term, you know, at the time, you know, business as usual. and um, there was certainly um, concerted effort among business people to enforce the idea that they should be carrying on as normal. But particularly in Scarborough, where you had the building of the uh, barbed wire defences and the roadblocks, businesses were literally had their doorways blocked up, and customers couldn't get to them. And so, this really annoyed a lot of local business people who went as far as petitioning the government to introduce a relaxation of the legislation for Scarborough because it was their economy was so reliant upon. Um, seasonal trade. The interesting thing about the the threat of air raids and naval raids is that local government and the cent- and central government didn't devise a plan for public shelters in the same way that we saw in the Second World War and then into the Cold War. Um, and that, I suppose the reason we have those plans in the Second World War is because of the learning from that experience of the First World War. People were generally encouraged to shelter in their homes to make makeshift shelters. Um, so bodies like local councils. Um, local military uh, authorities authorities like the um the lord lord lieutenant and different police authorities put out circulars uh, printed adver- advertisements in newspapers suggesting that people uh, line a room with mattresses and keep buckets of water on standby, perhaps fill their bath with water. So then if any shells do come into their house or fragments of shell, you know, burst through the wall, they can then put the fragments into water they've got to cool them down. They'd have water to fight fires with and police were briefed on first aid on basic firefighting duties because the, a lot of the firefighters had gone to fight at the front so they were stretched meaning whole they recruited auxiliary firefighters who were just employed for the duration of the war because of the severity of some of the zeppelin raids in scarborough and whitby Hartlepool as well the local councils what the municipal councils devised drills for school children used basements in nearby shops um, as shelters and they, you know there were practice drills we've got evidence that there were practice drills where the children were timed on how quickly they could get from the school to the shelter.
0: So ha- so you've touched on on how the uh, bombardment is remembered in Scarborough um, how are these events remembered in, in other communities um, in the present day?
1: Well the the, the strongest kind of collective memory um, of the 16th of December 1914 bombardment is in Hartlepool and one of the chapters of my thesis um, covers uh, this in some detail uh, the kind of uh, longitudinal kind of study of the way that commemoration changed in all of the places particularly strong in, in Hartlepool so during the war after the bombardment every year on the day that it had happened or the weekend often closest to when it had happened fundraising events were put were put on um, to raise money for the hospitals that had um, nursed people, victims and survivors um, of the bombardment. And this this happened every year, uh, well into the interwar years, and at various points it kind of came back. It became a kind of bog standard kind of hospital fundraising day in the kind of 20s and 30s and then as time wore on there was more of a reason to remind people of the kind of memory um, of the bombardment like many things uh, of this nature you've got the big commemorative flourishes of activity when there's big anniversaries and from the kind of mid-noughties the uh, Huff uh, Battery Museum in Hartlepool which is on the headland still maintains the tradition of ha- marking the passing of the bombardment um, at the time and on the day of its occurrence uh, every single year. And there, there is a kind of sense that Hartleypool people, in particular headlanders, um, kind of own that memory that it's like, It's a really important part of their kind of identity, and I think that's why it's maintained. That Hartley Pool was a real was a real uh, severe victim of bombardment in that war, and it's generally not incorporated into kind of national codes of remembering. It's not really part of that story. With the other places, the centenary period between 2014 and 18, as as as, as far as I can see, has been the only real point that there's been a lot of of commemorative activity around bombardment in Hull. There's been things like radio plays. different kind of ceremonies um, to mark some of the more serious raids. Uh, the June 1915 raid uh, was the, the first one on the city, and that was marked in kind of commemorative ceremonies. Whitby, there's been very little apart from an art installation that was uh, built in the town of a mock-up of a bombed house um, that then was accompanied by an interpretation panel that kind of gave the story, and that was actually a really excellent piece of work. Um, that the uh, Whitby and Bloom um, charity uh, devised, and there were various points from the post-war period at which you know local military associations had dinners and commemorative events to mark uh, the passing of bombardments. But really, like as I said, the most concerted effort has uh, has always been in Hartlepool and been, uh, remains so to this day.
0: And finally, where can people learn more about your research?
1: Uh, I have a, I have a website, um, it's www.michaeljreave.com uh, and I'm also on Twitter at the handle uh, Dr Michael Reeve and there's links to all of my work uh, on there. Michael, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thanks very much for having me.
0: You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.